You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Uh, Many thanks for joining our podcast on drug therapies today. Um, So I'll be exploring um, DMARD therapy um, and uh, initiating these medications um, in our patients with um, autoimmune rheumatic disorders. My name is Yikman. I am a final year registrar in South London um, and also a member of the Digital Learning Board. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Sarah Ryan, who is um, a professor of rheumatology nursing at Midlands Partnership Foundation NHS Trust. And we're very, very lucky to have her today. Um, so just to kick off the podcast, um, over the recent years, there's been a great emphasis on educating patients and giving them more autonomy in managing their own chronic condition. And Sarah, I understand that your PhD was looking at what enables patients to cope with rheumatoid arthritis, and I'd be very interested to hear more about your findings. Thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for having me today. Yes, so my PhD was looking at what factors help patients cope with their rheumatoid arthritis. And the main findings from that emphasised how important it was to help patients manage their pain and their stiffness, that if they felt we could get their symptoms controlled, they felt they'd be more able to cope with their arthritis. Having access to information to facilitate self-management was also a very important factor, as was the nature of the consultation. When patients were describing primarily their medical consultations at that time, they wanted to feel included. They alluded to concepts that we'd refer to today as shared decision-making, and they felt that if they had an active part to play in deciding their treatment, for example, their disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, they were therefore more likely to be involved, included, and that helped their whole management. And this study, we interviewed 40 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and it helped us develop our own services a lot. We therefore then went on to develop education programmes for patients that also included family members, because that was another important aspect of that research, that social support influenced their decision making and their perceptions of how well they cope with their arthritis. Great. And I think that kind of leads on quite nicely, obviously, as clinicians, Um, we want to give our patients DMARD therapy and get them into disease remission. But we often do come across a group of patients that are non-adherent to medication. And you've mentioned some already, but are there any other extra tips that you would suggest to help manage these patients who, who are not particularly adherent to their medication? Yeah, I mean, I think what the research shows is education alone is not enough for adherence. We do need to address patients' medication beliefs, what they think about their medications, what their expectations and concerns are. And there's a really helpful model by Rob Horn, the necessity concerns model, which indicates that those patients who perceive their tablets to be important and have a high necessity are much more likely to take their medicines than those patients that have high concerns, which probably suggests that we ought to have a way in clinical practice of identifying those patients with higher concerns and spending more time with those patients to find out what it is we can do to reduce those concerns and increase the importance of the medication. I often just ask patients, 
on a one to seven, one to ten scale to say, how important is it to you to take this medication and how confident are you to take it? And if they score below seven, I ask them what I would need to do to help them with to increase that that level. So we get them above the seven. And it just gives me a useful indication of identifying which patients need more time from one of the nursing staff to help them come to terms with them with their medications and to move forward I think that's I think that's such an excellent tip and certainly I've not thought about doing that myself in my own practice Um, and certainly something I would like to try um, especially when dealing with these group of patients that that are not particularly adherent to their medication Um, so for any new nurses that are listening to this podcast um, how would you decide which DMAR to use and in which patient? Um, and what would you kind of subsequently do if they're not responding well to um, traditional combined DMAR therapy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we all tend to follow uh, appropriately the national guidelines for early rheumatoid arthritis. And following that, we would look at methotrexate, you know, as our kind of first anchor drug that we would actually use often in combination with hydroxychloroquine um, as well. Um, if people were not responding to that, so uh, after after the period of time, after about 12 weeks, if we found that there was limited response or no response, then there's certain options we, we could look at. We could look at whether we needed to increase the dose of the methotrexate that we'd started the patients on, whether we would need to add in other medication. If there was no response further to that or no response after trying two DMARDs, then we could look at whether that patient is, is going to be appropriate for biologic therapy. So I think all our practices, getting patients on treatment early, monitoring the efficacy at the right time after three or four months, and then changing treatment if the patient hasn't responded adequately there may be some response and therefore we can we can adjust doses get doses up quickly um as well on a treat to target sort of basis um but also being aware that we have got other options for our patients such as biologic therapies as well to get the condition as, as well controlled as we can as early as we can because we know that within the first two years there's the potential for for a lot of um damage to to occur to the joints Right. And just expanding on some of the points you've mentioned already. Um, so just referring back to the BSR guidelines, um, we all use it. We all find it very useful, um, especially for the prescription and the monitoring of BMARDs. Um, and typically you start blood monitoring for methotrexate, for example. Um, uh, you have blood monitoring every two weeks for the first six weeks. Are there any situations you can think of um, where you've had to monitor someone more closely, such as on a weekly basis? Yeah, I think somebody, if somebody's at high risk for side effects, they may have other comorbidities, um, liver disease that, that you're particularly worried about or some lung in, involvement. If they've previously had a neutropenia um, or, or other related side effects that you're worried about, all of those factors would go in your mind. So I think we all would want to practice individualised care. So although we've got the, the guidelines, as you allude to, for the two weekly monitoring for the first six weeks, if there are other things that concern us about coexisting conditions um, or, or if they've had to stop a drug recently um, due to a liver abnormality or a neutropenia, we might just want to keep a closer eye uh, when we reintroduce that particular treatment or start another treatment for them. 
Yeah, and actually just thinking of my own patient cohort in South London, um, we have quite a large um, Black ethnic minority and we see quite a lot of neutropenia and certainly yeah. I would keep a quite close eye on those patients, which you've mentioned yeah. already. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned, uh, you know, methotrexate is our anchor drug and sometimes um, or often using it in combination with hydroxychloroquine. So there has been a greater concern over the past few years uh, regarding hydroxychloroquine-related um, retinal toxicity. So the BSR guidelines now recommend the need for objective retinal assessment using optical coherence tomography. Do you think that these guidelines have um, or recommendations have changed the way you prescribe hydroxychloroquine? No, I don't think they have. I mean, we've luckily got um, a good relationship with um, our eye team who are happy to assist with the uh, those particular OCT tests when they're required. So preferably within that kind of first year of treatment, six months and then uh, annually at the five year mark if they're staying on, on long term treatment. We haven't got many opticians locally who've been offering that service for us, but we have a good relationship with our, with our eye specialists. So it's worked well here locally that we just do a short uh, referral letter um, and it, it all seems to go very smoothly for the patients as well. And obviously, when patients start medication, we've always informed them about the um, rare um, potential complication of retinal involvement. So the patient is always making that, that final decision about commencing their treatment. Yeah. And I think you actually highlighted an important point there as well in terms of having and maintaining those relationships with other departments, um, which means that you, you can afford to refer the patients on yeah. and, and get them tested. And I yeah. suspect that um, in trusts where it might be more difficult to get an OCT, actually, if, if we have patients in remission um, on methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine, it may be a consideration to try and drop the hydroxychloroquine off yeah. um, where, yeah. when, it's, when it's possible to um, yeah. do that. Yeah, we, we certainly do that. So if we're looking at kind of patients in remission and reducing their drug therapy with, with their consent, then we would try and reduce the, low, the least sort of potent one, so to speak, first, which would be that hydroxychloroquine. And I think assessing that it's still needed in patients, you know, as well is, is, is an important uh, point of consideration. Yeah. Um, so just moving on to polypharmacy. Um, so it's a huge problem, um, especially in the elderly population. Um, I think as clinicians, we're very good at increasing immunosuppression when patients have active disease. But I think maybe we're less good at reducing immunosuppression once they're in a stable disease remission. And um, what do you tend to do in your own practice? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a discussion with, with the patients. So I think the length of the duration of the remission is important. You know, how long has their condition been, been stable for uh, would be kind of one of those consider, consideration. And maybe a slow, slow reduction. Maybe it starts, you know, with a reduction in the dosage of a medication a patient's taking. So you might reduce the dose of methotrexate, you know, explaining to the patient that if they noticed increase in their inflammatory symptoms, joint pain, joint swelling, fatigue, that we could, there's always the option to increase up again. And I think just sort of preparing patients. So you may have a, you may have a consultation where you think, mm, next time, if we're still in remission, this could be a good time to reduce the medication down or take one away completely from combination therapy. Just so you're sowing those seeds with the patients and to obviously get the patient's preference because if a patient is feeling well on their current treatment regime, it can be very uh, frightening from what patients share with me to suddenly suggest that we might be uh, thinking of reducing that. 
So I think it's that engagement with the patient explaining why we're doing it, that we're happy with how their condition is going, that they're managing their symptoms well. So I think it's part of that shared care discussion. Uh, decision-making process with them. I mean, there are other patients that are very happy to, to reduce as well. They, you know, they share the same, the same goal as being on the minimum amount of treatment that keeps them well. So it's a kind of an individual sort of choice for some patients and just supporting those patients that are slightly more hesitant to do so, that we can do it slowly. No, definitely. I think, I mean, on one extreme of the spectrum, you'll have patients who would want to wean off their immunosuppression as quickly as possible once they're better. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where they've had bad disease for such a long time, you've gradually escalated their therapy and their remission, and they don't want to go down on their immunosuppression and go back to where they were before. And then you obviously have everyone in between. And I think that kind of nicely highlights the need for an individualized approach yes. um, and having these discussions with our patients. Um, so that's tailored to what they want and what they need. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it'll be very difficult to talk about drug therapies in rheumatology without touching upon steroids. Yes. Um, what is your usual practice with using steroids and how do you minimize the long list of side effects associated with long-term steroids? Yeah, so, so our main use of steroids tends to be as bridging therapy. So if a patient's starting on a DMARD and we know it can take up to those 12 weeks before we can see improvement and helping patients manage their symptoms in that period of time. So we tend to use intramuscular uh, steroid to, to help patients. We explain to people that it is um, temporary treatment, that its main aim is to try and manage their symptoms while we wait for the, the DMARDs to actually work, that it isn't a regular treatment that we that we give at all and if patients were requiring regular steroid then that would indicate the disease is not well controlled and they would actually benefit from a full assist, uh, assessment of their of their condition um also i think just being sort of cautious if you're thinking of people that have already got uh, osteoporosis or diabetes is that going to be the best way of managing them are there other options to use rather than than steroid treatment um you know talking to patients about how they're managing their inflammatory symptoms with self-help measures such as using ice or using heat as well can often have a value so we don't just jump in straight away with 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 steroids but i think that explanation is really important we sometimes get patients who are going on holiday but they're well but they still ring up to request a steroid injection is uh, almost a prerequisite to going on holiday and having a good, you know, good holiday. And we need to obviously explain that's not appropriate to use if the condition isn't active and suggest other ways. And then all, if, if we were having to use oral steroids, which we, we rarely use, but if we were having to use oral steroids, if people didn't respond to the intramuscular route of administration and they were staying on longer than we would ideally want, well, we're always thinking of how we're going to look after their bone with bone protection and stomach protection medication as well to try and uh, minimise some of the symptoms. And I think it's the, the lowest dose we can use for the shortest period of time, knowing that side effects are uh, increased, the greater association with higher dosage use of steroids as well. Yeah, we've actually had a few patients call through recently um, asking for an iron depth injection before their holiday. Yes. Um, so yes, it, it does happen, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and actually talking about the helpline um, and uh, the service, the rheumatology service, I know that your next piece of work um, is looking at how to optimise the function and effectiveness of the helpline. Um, I'm certain that most rheumatology departments across the country have had an increasing volume of calls 
partly because of the pandemic. Um, how are you managing these increased volume of calls and, and where do you see we go, we go with the help plan in the future? Yeah, I think it's a real challenge. The The most frequent and common calls I get from colleagues around the country on a weekly basis is asking how can they manage with this increasing number of calls, the stress it's causing people because they can't get back to everybody that's ringing in and contacting these, these services. And um, there was a piece of work the BSR did on the state of play about nursing roles not that long ago, which also highlighted pre-pandemic, the demand was, was rising at that time. Um, how, how we do things locally. Um, and, and just for example, on, on um, coming coming back to work after the Jubilee break, we had 134 calls on that wow. on that Monday to deal with but you know we kind of average 90 90 a day for two people to to do so it's incredibly credible but what we found really useful is we have a clinical support worker who triages all these calls and therefore by triaging we're able to identify uh, uh, that sort of source of entry where is the the best place to go to help that patient so do they need a call back from the nurse do they need um is it a prescription that that they're looking for or is it something actually that the clinical support worker can actually help them and direct them to a different department? We do make use of our, our, our great patient organisations to signpost patients to versus arthritis. NRAS, and we've found that the recent module on pain and stiffness, the video module that NRAS has released, has been particularly popular with patients for managing s- symptoms. We're looking at introducing a patient volunteer service as um, a be- befriending service to help some of our patients who ring up with their with their chronic pain, and there's a lot of uh, loneliness and, and sort of social isolation uh, involved. We have by no means got the ideal model, and it's something we struggle with, and the emotional giving that my colleagues go through. Mm. You know, it's something that's not sustainable in its present form, hence the need for a piece of work to to almost firstly identify good practice. Where where can we all learn from each other? What's the training and support that we give to to colleagues that provide this very vital service to to our patients? Because as I know, going back to my PhD work, having a point of access was really important to help patients feel they could cope. You know, being able to contact a member of the team when they're in a flare of their condition um, is extremely important to them so I think it's one of the 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 challenges we're all thinking about at the moment and 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 we know that we're needing to be quite innovative and look at different ways that we can provide patients with the information that they they need and 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 the advice that they're that they're ringing for yeah um and also just on the topic of kind of service changes um Patient-initiated follow-up PIFU is gradually being rolled um, out across the country. How do you think PIFU differs from the helpline that uh, most rheumatology services already offer? And how do you think they might impact or interact with each other? Yes, I mean, I think we'd want a different sort of um, portal for patients to come in for their patient-initiated follow-ups, a different way of, of contacting the department brilliant idea. I mean, Sarah Hewlett many years ago did a great piece of work on this uh, in Bristol and showed that patients were were very able, as we all know, to identify when they did need a follow-up and that when we're seeing people in clinic, we want to see people we can help at that time rather than people who are well stable that that don't need our our input. So I think it does differ from the advice line because the advice line is used for numerous 
reasons reporting of side effects, managing of symptoms, um, all those kind of, of things that, that, they, that they ring for. So I think it will require just a different mode of, of access in and that the two can be complementary because Often, if we're talking to people on the advice line, and it looks like from what from what we're observing and taking a clinical history that their condition is active, then we will arrange a follow up for them. And equally with patient initiated follow up, we'll want to have some kind of criteria to have that informed discussion with the patient to make sure actually rheumatology follow up is appropriate and that if they're ringing for sort of like pain management, that's something that we can do in the helpline. So in a way, the helpline has reduced our number of referrals to the clinics for our rheumatology and and nurse colleagues, because um, through the advice line, you're often able to help with problems there and then. So I think they'll be very complementary, but just perhaps having a, a different system so that one system can't be all things to all people, a panacea. So just having yeah. a different system for um, the, the patient initiated follow up. Great. Um, so thank you very much um, for sharing your time with us again, Sarah. Um, it was very helpful. Um, and uh, I think the things that I took away. We're just highlighting the importance of having an individualized approach to managing our patients and the importance of patient education and helping them to self-manage as well, especially as our workload um, is increasing. Yeah. And and when you think, you know, we only see a a patient for a short period of time, maybe maximally, you know, three times a year. So the the more sort of effort... Mm -hmm and concentration we can actually put on enabling patients to self-manage when they're living with their condition every day you know it still remains as important today as it was when I you know I first came into the profession yeah excellent thank you very much for your time again that's lovely thank you as well Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.